0: Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo What's Next is on summer break and will return with new content shortly. As we take this break, please continue to tune in to WBFO Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. for producer's picks of some of our favorite episodes of Buffalo What's Next.
1: How can we afford not to talk about race? About
0: education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops market. The
2: suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art.
0: We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. On today's episode of Buffalo What's Next, Summertime Producers Picks, we look back at three segments from three previous shows. First, Bridget Chai pofalenza speaks with Kelly Diane Galloway from June 15th of last year. The two talk about Project Mona's house and modern day slavery in the form of human trafficking in Buffalo. Then, Jay Moran speaks with Tanell Jones from Charleston, South Carolina, about the parallels between Charleston and Buffalo from October 4th. And we end the show with Bridget speaking with Maria Ta from Ujima Theater about how theater and the arts address racial and social injustice issues. First... Bridget Jai-Paul Valenza with the founder of Project Mona's House, Kelly Diane Galloway.
1: Tell me about
0: Mona's House, first of all. (laughs) It is
1: a house for women who have been the victims of human trafficking. Yeah, yeah. Human trafficking certainly is, is not necessarily one of the things that comes to mind when you think of Buffalo. But in honesty, it is.
2: Absolutely, it is. Um... So the name of my organization, for um, those of you listening, is called Project Mona's House. And we have like three ways that we combat modern-day slavery, because that's what it is, modern-day slavery. Um, We do it through um, prevention, and that means education, going into schools, doctors' offices, lawyers' offices, and a plethora of other different types of places, um, and letting individuals know that, hey, this exists Because the first form of prevention is awareness, right? Mm -hmm. The the eyes don't see what the brain doesn't know. Right. And so um, I remember when I got my first car, it was a Nissan Altima, right? And it's like as soon as I drove off the parking lot, the car lot, all I started seeing was Nissan Altimas. (laughs) Right? But it's actually, that's actually a phenomenon. Um, And... I try to get as much information to people as possible, so they can see something and hopefully say something. And so, um, and then we have residential services, right? So, uh, right now we are the only restoration home in all of Western New York, specifically for women who've been victimized by human trafficking. And then after that, we also do what we call like um, independent. Um, our independent living program and so those are women who've been victims of human trafficking or children who've been victims of human trafficking who don't necessarily live in our residential services but they're able to take part of it and they do that through our free them center so mm-hmm. not freedom center but our free them center so they have access to uh, monday wednesdays and fridays our center is for women and on tuesdays and thursdays is for girls um second Through 12th grade and not all those girls have been victims of human trafficking but I found that if I really want to save women my number one priority should one of my top priorities I should say um, should be to empower girls and so we have a great program full of empowered girls who are writing books creating um, artwork starting businesses and um, yeah and this work has I mean it's a unfortunate thing that I have to do this job but um it has taken me all over the world.
1: Now you have been referred to as mm-hmm. a modern day abolitionist. I am. Um what does that mean to you? What what does that when you hear those words, what what comes to mind?
2: Badass. Like <laughs> can I say that on the radio? <laughs> Um, okay. (laughs) Like Harriet Tubman. Right. I mean, it is individuals who do not—who are are not afraid of fighting for freedom. And sometimes in order to get the freedom that people deserve and people need, it takes a level of boldness and and courage, and when we think about Harriet Tubman— We think about somebody who was barely five feet tall Mm. going to do what people say cannot be done, shouldn't be done. And I think it's a selfless job because she could have literally just saved herself, right? Right. And I mean...
1: But she chose not to.
2: She chose not to. And so I think that being an abolitionist means that you fight against any oppressive system so that people can experience not just the privilege of freedom, but their human right.
1: Now, you walked Mm -hmm. 902 miles of the Underground Railroad. (laughs) Um, That's a long walk.
2: It took us like 50 days. Sis. <laughs> we started in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is like where I've been living for, um, I went to college there. But right outside of Lynchburg, Virginia is Appomattox, where the Civil War uh, ended. Okay. And so we traced the Underground Railroad um, all the way from like um, Appomattox to Richmond, Petersburg, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, um, Delaware, and new uh new york city and then all the way across new york state and so it's about me and like 13 of my friends Mm -hmm. um who consistently walked i mean sometimes we stayed in hotels airbnbs um in an rv in the middle of the woods somewhere and um it was a a mind-blowing life-changing experience and so we call that the freedom walk and we ended um on june 19th of last year um, and we celebrated juneteenth right on the steps of city hall uh all the way to the African American Heritage Corridor. So we were Juneteenth last year.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> I can't help but put that in correlation to what some of the women who are trafficked have to go through in order to get free, to get safe, to get the help that they need. Um, how has that journey shaped then how you see the, the women that you deal with and the children that you deal with sometimes?
2: Um, I think in order to really answer that question, we have to examine what is the human trafficking victim. That mm-hmm. is somebody that's bought and sold for labor, sex, medical experimentation, even entertainment. I'm 36 years old. I'm only the third generation in my family to be born free in this country. That means my father, Warren Galloway, who is 72, will be, will be 72. My mm-hmm. grandmother, who we laid to rest, she would have been in her 90s only us three were not born on a plantation <laughs> so my ancestors are victims of human trafficking i'm a right. descendant of people who are victim, uh, who are um victims of human trafficking so this fight is personal for me and so um i see the the constant struggle that people who look like me have to face on a daily basis because of systems that that encourage imprisonment of human beings and so um when I fight for those women and I fight for those children along with my teammates, cause let's not get this twisted. I'm not doing this alone. Okay. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, like it, it, for some of us is a personal fight and for others, you know, they can't really relate to it from that sense. But human trafficking right now is not just um, for individuals that look like me. People right now being bought and sold who are black, white, Asian, Hispanic, and all other descents and um, ethnicities and, um, even socioeconomic levels, you know, mm-hmm. because really a trafficker preys on somebody that's vulnerable.
1: It's an opportunistic crime.
2: Yes, yes. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with children, it doesn't matter if their parents are billionaires, right? right. You have They have that access to that smartphone. You don't know if they're going to meet somebody one day that they really probably shouldn't. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, they're still a child. And I mean... your your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that helps you make even educated and and good decisions isn't even fully formed to 24, 25, right? Right. And so, well, I think mine is still under development. (laughs) 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 But at the end of the day, a child is going to be a child and we can't put the burden of protecting children on children.
1: Exactly. I mean, that whole part of the brain is what informs forward thinking. Yeah. As in, you know, if I do this, there are consequences. So mm-hmm. they're sort of missing that, that piece of, of developing. So can't really have any forward thinking to say, all right, mm-hmm. this is dangerous.
2: Absolutely.
1: This is dangerous. Um, how has the Topps Massacre changed the way these girls see themselves?
2: Well, at first it was conversations of um, because we had to have a healing circle and some counseling sessions with with a lot of them, and um, the conversation was like I thought we we're supposed to be proud of our skin, but our skin made us a target, and they're not wrong.
1: No, they are not wrong,
2: and and I still want them to see themselves as as beautiful and strong and brilliant, not just because of their skin color, but just because that is who they are. But being a black and brown girl is a beautiful thing, right? And unfortunately, somebody thought that that made them, you know, worthy of being hunted because that's really what happened, right? Right. And so um, for for the girls and for the women that we serve, Number one, I wanted to let them know that there's nothing wrong with you. But on the other hand, not, not but, I'm, not, I'm going to take that word back. Um, on the other hand, I champion the cause of freedom. I champion, my life is about freedom mm-hmm. in every way possible. And I posed this question when I was on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. last week. What benefit or what good is freedom without safety? So for our women, you mean I can be burned and tied up and sold to six or 12 men in one day or women in one day. Um, I can escape some of the most unimaginable circumstances that the average person cannot even comprehend. And then for some of the girls, it's like, I feel like I can finally live now. I want to live. I, I, I realize and accept that I have so much more in front of me than what's behind me. And then and now I feel free. But what is freedom? What good is freedom without safety? Why can't a little brown girl go to the grocery store in her own community and look for some snacks or something like that without having to hide in a freezer because a white supremacist has opened up fire in the only grocery store in her community? Why can't a father travel to Buffalo, New York to buy a birthday cake to celebrate his son's birthday, which some of our girls were going to that birthday party, and he can't make it out the grocery store because he got shot in the head? What good is freedom without safety? And so I lift to you that there is no freedom without safety. And so because of that, we do need action from Washington. We need action from our state. We need action from our city. To be able to guarantee that people can actually be free with the understanding that there is no freedom without safety. And so measures have to be put in place, programming has to be put in place, funding has to be put in place to make sure that there is actual freedom that our women and our girls feel in their communities.
1: When you talk about safety, mm and feeling safe and a feeling of belonging in a neighborhood. How does that empowerment that you're giving them translate into them becoming safe or helping the community to become a safe place for people of color, for people who live there, for anybody who happens to be going to the grocery store there? Uh, How how does that translate from empowerment to action?
2: Well, every single time they come into the center um, and I'm specifically just talking about the girls at this point, not our women, Mm. um, they can't come in without saying their declaration. And the declaration begins and ends with, uh, well, it begins with, I'm an empowered girl. I will absolutely change the world. And then it has a whole bunch in between it, and then it, it ends, and, and it says, I'm a, I'm proud to be an empowered girl. Watch and see how I change the world. And so right now, they're already being conditioned to change the world, Um one of our elected officials, she came in, uh, April Baskin, to teach them about legislation and policy. And so right now they're practicing on writing um, a piece of legislation to submit to our city council.
3: That's and
2: amazing. so um, <laughs> and I'm proud of them for that. And it may not be perfect the first time, but it's it's what they're doing together, you know. Right. And so um, I think that what. What we're doing translates into real life because we're giving them the tools, the ac- the access, and um, and the opportunities that they need to be able to realize that their voices are powerful and that they can be heard. And and um, anybody that knows anything about me, like I'm so against having tons and tons of meetings. I, I'm hundred percent results driven, and so the girls in my program, like being heard, is not enough. We tell them that all the time. Yeah, we want you to be heard. But if somebody's listening to you, like, oh, my goodness, I'm giving you my thoughts and my prayers and my sympathies, and there's no action behind it, it's worthless. So we teach them being heard is not enough. We need to see action. And so action looks like what are you funding? Right. Who has a seat at the table? Whose voices are being not just heard but valued enough that action can can, um, come after that.
1: Years of oppression, abuse, fear that you see in the women who mm. come to Mona's house resembles, really, the decades of inequity, biased practices, racism that has taken the toll on the psyche of a not only a community, of a people. How does that inform how a community feels about itself, how a person would feel about themselves.
2: Well, anything that you say over and over again, you start to believe. And anything that people say to you, sometimes you start to believe. So if somebody t- is telling you that this, what you have right now is the best that you get, you start believing, like, you start being grateful, like, oh, this is the best I can get. Right. This is, this is what I deserve. But is it really? You you going to work forty to sixty hours in a nursing home somewhere, and you paying your taxes, and this is the best you deserve? This is it, and so I think we have to start looking at and examining what is our best, and what systems have existed to tell us this is our this is our best. Our women, when um, the the number one thing that we have to do when we when they're starting to go through the process of restoration, mm-hmm. is convincing them that their trafficker is not their friend. Or my trafficker is not my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Right. Because now, to me, this is what love looks like. But is it really?
1: It's a conditioning of abuse. It's grooming. Yes. It's to get you into a mindset Mm -hmm. of this is what I deserve because of. Whatever reason, the color of my skin, my sex, my gender, my whatever.
2: And we have to be bold enough to say, you know what, this is not what love looks like. Right. This is not what love looks like. And so the same way those women in Mona's house have to say, you know, they have to redefine what love is. It's the same way our community needs to take a hard look at itself and how things run and the way things look and say, is this really what love looks like?
1: Buffalo love. Buffalo. Or maybe not.
2: <laughs> maybe. Maybe. The maybe. city of good neighbors. Good neighbors take care of themselves, take care of each other. hmm I think we got too many people taking care of themselves and not each other. And so it's going to take some work. It's going to take some time. But I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm hopeful.
1: As Buffalo, as the east side pivots. Mm-hmm to overcome mode, as you would put it, overcome mode, Um, what is necessary? What is necessary now? What is necessary in three months from now and in three years from now?
2: Well, let's just admit it. That man picked that community on purpose because it's the most concentrated uh, population of black and brown people. Um, it was a, a, a lower income community. And I think that we need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence, more prog- more money into um, arts and more money into things that will make the people in that community no longer be in survivor mode but be in overcomer mode. We need more equitable solutions for ease, healthier access for food. We should never have only had one grocery store on the entire east side of Buffalo. It needs to be uh uh more initiatives to make sure that we have access to healthier resources and I think we'll start seeing healing um even in our bodies and as far as like the children and 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 women and men go, we need we need free mental health resources. I mean, even you have some people that are the working poor. So, you know, I make a little bit too much to go to take advantage of this free mental health counseling and I'm really losing it. And so, um, yeah, I think I think putting funding into the hands of the individuals who labor in our communities every single day and knows where the money needs to go.
0: That was Bridget Japo Valenza with the founder of Project Mona's House, Kelly Diane Galloway. Next... As we end National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, we revisit Jay Moran's conversation with therapist Tanelle Jones from Charleston, South Carolina, from October 4th of last year. The two speak about the parallels between Charleston and Buffalo.
4: If you could, Tanelle, just take us back and try to recall the emotions of Charleston after June 17th, 2015.
5: Yeah, um, so obviously when the tragedy occurred, it was so much shock, hurt around the community, um, but also so much um, connectedness, people wanting to be there and support for each other. It actually reminded me of, you know, when 9-11 happened, how people would speak to you right after that. So there was a sense of community. I know there was like a bridge walk where people were walking, out, walking over, holding hands, you know, speaking about the process the possibility of hope, healing, and connection, Um, but still so much devastation impacted Charleston community, even to this day, but I think it's inspired a lot of um, great things as well, you know, again, with a lot of the annual events that that have occurred, as well as, you know, now having um, the International African-American Museum coming here, so I think it's a place for people to come and learn more about what happened but also really focus on who they are um, and their characters and, and make some changes as necessary.
4: you most certainly brought up a lot of points that uh, uh, deem uh, some follow-up uh, questions but let's talk about what brought our attention to you, the Resilience Program. This is a, a, an effort by the Medical University of South Carolina. Tell us uh, about how it originated and what it does.
5: Yeah, so um, it originated. Obviously, we had to be able to partner with the Mother Emanuel Church, and so um, I don't know if people are aware that uh, when the massacre occurred, all of the leadership was was in that church at the time, mm-hmm. and they were murdered. So the you know they had to establish new leadership, and. Um, so that was really hard like so much grief for the church and so much loss and so partnering with musc and other and actually also the department of mental health um, we created a, what we call mother Manual empowerment center which was a building house right next to the church and it was a safe space for people to come in we had so many different programmings available support groups just programming around wellness understanding trauma um, just really connecting to, again, the, the families and the communities. we actually started before it was complete. I would say the Mother of May Empowerment Center really began, um, during the, during the trial, the United States versus Dylan Ruth trial, um, is where we really showed our support for, for the families going through such a difficult, um, just a difficult time. It's just so hard to put into words because I can't imagine having to go through that and sit through that, um so
4: absolutely Uh, you mentioned the families and we've heard uh, some from the families here in Buffalo uh, since May 14th uh, but uh, what about for you you were right there with many of them Uh, talk about what they went through um, perhaps commonalities and maybe in some ways uh, differences how they may have differed and how they responded and how they moved through this this time after uh, this tragedy
5: yeah, so with grief and loss and trauma, people experience it differently for different reasons um, and so I, like I said, I think when a lot of them reconnected during the trial for when they came from different states, so they I saw a sense of togetherness and we we're in this together um, during that time. You know, some people, obviously, it was hard for them to want to be involved and engaged. So they kind of like went and focused on, you know, just their own selves and their own family, which is totally understandable. Um, it's interesting because as a therapist doing this work with, with this type of tragedy, it's not like you kind of have this separation. Like we became part of the families. We, we got to know everybody's, you know, birthday and important life events as they continued on this healing journey for themselves and for the church you know being in the church often and for all events when they lost a family member we were present so it's just so many things happening that um i think if you know if you are a therapist getting involved in this it's you have to be open to really connecting on a different level versus this professional and client level is it's just opening yourself up to to truly be a part of their I'm going to say
4: loss and hope, you know. That's interesting, a way of describing, like you said, loss and hope, because you do have to move on, right? Um, And it was uh, seven years ago, but uh, seven difficult years, I can only imagine, for for some of the folks involved here. What about for you? Uh, I know we talked yesterday, previous to this, you were actually the chief operating officer with another organization and joined the Resilience Program to become one of the, the counselors involved. How about for you? How has it been for you and for maybe your other counselors as well, working through this? Because, like you said, you're, you became very attached to the families.
5: Yeah, I. You know, I acknowledge it as a as an honorable experience, um, and just grateful that these magnificent beings allowed me to be part of. Again, which which could be considered one of the most devastating things that they could possibly experience, and so I felt honored in that in this journey with them, this journey of healing, um, and was really again I, I never made it about me and and my thoughts. So just being fully present with them that's kind, that's how I've functioned in this, and still even to this day when we've had these connections with these families for over these amount of years. And so they might still, like, reach out and, you know, I check on them when I can. So it's just really been, like I said, phenomenal in that they embraced us. You know, a lot of times when people are hurting and healing, mental health hasn't always been, like, a focus. And so promoting that it's okay to talk about what you're feeling, it's okay to be part of, you know, the Mother of Empowerment Center, to be part of healing has really, really been, I think, um significant just in in addressing the stigma which is also you know this is a church community so there is also that kind of you know most churches like hey we just focus on you know um what what we can get from our higher power versus coming and talking to somebody about what we're feeling so I think it really opened that door and and a space to start to, to recognize the importance of mental health and getting help and you can't do this alone
4: it's interesting that you talk about mental health because one of the things that caught me right here in buffalo may 14th happened by the end of may 14th you know mental health counselors were uh omnipresent in the neighborhood around the tops where uh 10 people were shot and killed um you mentioned how sometimes when it comes to mental health, there are those barriers. Can you talk about those and perhaps maybe how some of those barriers maybe hopefully have gone away or at least been eased over the last seven years?
5: Yeah. So um, the barriers, again, of just the stigma, because of this being a faith community, most faith communities are just like, hey, let's just pray about it. Just come and talk to your pastor about what's going on. And I think um just again like I said, seeing this community really open up to recognizing that they need it more, right? That that we were maybe invited in because of, you know, their faith, if that makes any sense. And and so so that just kind of lowering those lowering that down a little bit was helpful and and now I think what we've seen is and we provided mental health in so many different ways we went to them like they didn't have to come to the empowerment center so we went to where they were we did phone, we did video, we had different types of community events, anything. You know, one of the events that I really enjoyed doing was, like, our annual fall. We call it the Good Good Grief Youth Fall Festival, and it was a space for children to come to one of the county parks and just do lots of work, um, like, art and create, like, Um, creative arts exercises and games and they could connect to each other and still remember their loved ones in in many ways. So we did different things like that and so it wasn't, again, maybe just like this whole traditional, you come in and you sit down and you talk. I think that was because we were open and flexible, it allowed people to like I said, just really accept that it was okay to come in and be part of healing and, and support and get support as needed.
4: This morning on Buffalo, What's Next? We're talking with tonelle Jones, a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed addictions counselor. She is part of the Brazilians program out of Charleston, South Carolina, established by the uh, Medical University of South Carolina. What kind of advice would you give to the community of Buffalo in terms of trying to help those people most directly involved with this shooting? And I
5: would say I think the biggest thing is just recognizing that everybody grieves differently, and so to not have expectations that people are going to present a certain way, and for those of you who are involved in supporting the families in in Buffalo as much as you can, make it about them and not about, you know, I know most people probably are feeling pain, but one of the things that I think is helpful is I was not directly impacted by the mother Emanuel tragedy so it definitely made it easier for me to be part of the support and the healing team and so for for providers who are i can't imagine um you know they may have their own grief and trauma as well so just be mindful of that and, and making the healing about those people who were impacted directly
0: that was jay moran with tenille jones a reminder that buffalo what's next visited charleston south carolina this year for our buffalo what's next special buffalo and charleston Parallel Journey of Hope, Healing, and Reconciliation, which you can find on our website on demand at WBFO.org. Watch Buffalo's Voices of Steel on YouTube. The original WNED PBS production captures the legacy of the steel industry in Western New York through the voices of the people who worked in the mills. Anybody who never saw the steel plant in operation missed something. I told my kids that they really missed to see what it was like to make steel.
2: Through remembrances
3: of the workers, Buffalo's Voices of Steel showcases the pride Western New York still feels about its steel producing past. Watch it now on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there.
4: This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the talk to us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station.
0: And we're in the show today with Bridget Jai valenza with Maria Tai from Ujima Theater from June 30th of last year.
1: Ujima is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, professional theater. That's what it says on the website. Um, whose primary purpose is preservation, perpetuation, and performance of African American theater. Tell me about that mission.
3: So our mission is based around the, the actual name of the theater company, Ujima, which for folks who don't know is a Swahili word that means collective work and responsibility. Uh, Lorna Seahill, our founder, based the theater company around the idea uh, and the tenant of this community of bringing people together from all backgrounds, all races, um, all identities to, to work to play, to vision, to dream, uh, and that is the driving force that breathes life into the work that you see on stage, into the work that we do in the community. Um, It is the work that lifts up the voices and the stories that people often don't hear, especially when we're talking about American theater, about traditional American theater. Um, We look for stories that are important to the communities that we work with, uh, which is what you'll, you'll largely see when you come see our work. It has been a difficult
1: time it has been i mean difficult really would be an under an understatement how how are you doing with everything that's been going on
3: yeah i'd say for um for the most part i am i'm doing okay uh, I have often been a container for many people for a lot of things i find solace in doing that in making space in being a provider and that's how i heal and navigate through trauma um the first few weeks were difficult Mm -hmm. i'm sure for for many people um i struggled with the notion of being numb, of whether or not to lean in or lean out or do no leaning at all Mm -hmm. for that matter, um, and have tried to navigate in the last few weeks how best to move forward with intention, with purpose.
1: It's tiring. Yeah. (laughs) This work is... is it's tiring. I mean, I think sometimes we negate the mm-hmm. emotional toll that it takes, um, and simply the energy that it takes to simply exist in a space. Um, and that's not even talking about, you know, sort of perpetuating in that space, or mm-hmm. even closing up and being s- tiny in a space, but just existing. As a theater company, I know that you guys are very active in the community. Um, So tell me about some of the programs that you have, some of the work that you do uh, in terms of being in the community and, and, and how that plays a role in shaping the theater.
3: Sure, so the company itself operates as a professional theater company. We produce a season of shows. Um, our last season this year has been the first full season in about seven years that we've been able to to come in we've We've moved a couple of spots um, so having to settle and then the pandemic happening. And everything in between losing our our founder and artistic director in that period of time as well and transitioning the company from that, Um, we have been able to lean into the mission that we talked about earlier, and there has been no lapse in the work that we've done had you not known what was going on in the company uh, you would have never known that anything had changed and i think that was a huge tenant of not only strength but of the passion that so many people who call themselves ujima's family the the people who make it happen (laughs) um That is uh, a tenant that they carry with them and that breathes life into into the work that we, we currently do. So this past season, we've been able to create a couple of different and new initiatives that speak to the, the work that Ujima has always done. Um, one of my favorite ones this year was being able to uh, launch the inaugural Lorna C. Hill Speaking Contest with uh, Buffalo Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hosted the finalists at the Lorna C. Hill Theater, um, our home uh, in the former public school, 77. And that is very similar to the August Wilson monologues for folks who are familiar with that program. And it was in a time where students were just coming back into school in person. Um, just trying to figure out how to survive in this new world that they were in and being able to focus in on something that led them to a goal. Uh, They selected a monologue that they worked on. It came from a black canon, so it was either prose or poetry or a monologue from a theatrical piece and were able to perform in front of their peers and their teachers. And I have to say I was completely blown away. (laughs) These kids are talented. And when they have a really strong conviction for what they want to do and what they want to say, I not only heard the words that they performed, which were not their own, but I heard what it is they got from those works, from being able to work through that artistic practice. Um, and we continue on the relationship beyond that. So the, the winners of the competition actually come in, into the company in the fall to be our interns, and they'll be paid interns through through the district. Um, so we're really excited about that. That's going to be an annual uh, program that we're going to run every year.
1: How important is it when you're talking to or about youth to have them be involved in this process, in the process of the arts and using the arts um, as, a, as a mean, as a, as a tool? Talk, can you tell me about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, young people are what I love. (laughs) I love hanging around young people. I love being around young people. Uh, It is a major component of Ujima. Uh, One of the last missions if you were that Lorna left with us is to teach the children and I still think about that every day every day I go into work uh, she asked us to teach the children and for us um, that comes in a multitude of ways Uh, not only in just the programs but we encourage our company um, our actors if you need help with your children if you can't find a babysitter and that means you won't be at rehearsal. You're bringing your kid to rehearsal. <laughs> uh, we are a family through and through. So we will make sure that your kid is able to do their homework while you're rehearsing uh, so that there isn't an, an obstacle in the way to doing art. And we teach that at a very young age. Um, we teach them that art is a, a way to communicate a way to speak to one another, a way to tell stories in ways that you don't even fully understand, don't know how to say, Um, lean into the artistic practice and see what comes out.
1: Now, how have the conversations been with your actors, your staff, with the company since the 14th?
3: Yeah, this is an interesting question because I think I think folks would be surprised by my answer in that when you are a a black led organization, a black institution, a black historic institution, things don't necessarily change. Those conversations don't shift in the way people think. We sit with the trauma and we sit with the the immediate action of making sure everyone's okay, checking in on one another, but it doesn't change our work and it never has and it never will because our work has constantly and consistently talked about exactly what had happened on the 14th. So for us it was how do we continue doing what we do? How do we continue making space? How do we continue bringing light and bringing the conversations to the people who need to have it most? How do we create healing spaces for everyone? Uh, Something that will stick with me is after the event on the 14th, I had to make a decision whether or not to cut our youth program that was scheduled for uh, the immediate week after, whether or not we should continue holding that program. And I was adamant that no matter if it was one kid or 20, we were going to keep the theater open for whoever needs to come. And I didn't think it was that impactful. It was just what the company has always done. When things got bad out there and you were a company member, you went to the theater. So I wanted to maintain that tradition. And one of the students said, Miss Maria, I'm surprised you still had the program. And I said, it's important. It's important for you guys to be able to be with one another. This is your community. If you wanted to come and be in community, you have it. And it was my responsibility to make sure that that space existed for you.
1: You're listening to Buffalo. What's next? I'm host Bridget Jai-Paul Valenza. Today, we are with Maria Ta from Ijima Theater. Let's... Talk about racism. (laughs) Actors in general face struggles for parts, for um, getting to auditions, for paying rent Mm -hmm. and living life. Um, But it's different for an actor of color. It's different for a black actor, for a brown actor um tell me why
3: theater is funny <laughs> it is it's been co-opted to be a guarded space when its original origin is around storytelling oral history the way we share Our history, our people's history, from one generation to the next. And somehow we've made it into a world where if you didn't go to a conservatory or you didn't have technical training, you weren't considered a professional. You do community theater, you're not that good. It doesn't matter how talented you are or what skills and knowledge you've gained along the way. If you didn't have the credentials, people wouldn't even see you. And that struggle is what permeates the artistic pool of particularly black and brown performers. When you think about how do we train our people in a practice that is largely lauded over them, that you are preparing them for roles that aren't created for them, for their stories, how do you marry that with, well, if I teach you liberatory theater practices, how do you get into auditions? How do you provide that as a credential? The difficulty in that is sometimes we have to swallow it in order to give them the technical skills that they need to get into the door. But then the second obstacle is, where are the opportunities for black and brown performers you see black and brown performers get into roles that are, quote, unquote, traditionally for white folks, and people get up in arms. And
1: Twitter has a canary.
3: You can't, you can't, have, a, you can't have a black Cinderella. You can't, th- you can't tell that story. And then as an actor who has worked so hard to get there, how do you marry that with getting up on stage and doing your job? and performing to the best of your abilities. So it's not just a struggle of technical skill for black and brown actors and performers. It's a job of my identity. How do I strip myself of that in order to do the job? Do I want to? That is a traumatic thing to have to do for some folks. And pursuing something that was your passion in a field that wasn't created for you, has been co-opted in a way that wasn't created for you, is extremely daunting and exhausting. It's tiring. It takes a lot out of people, especially if they don't have a community to hold them through it.
1: It's, it's a good thing Ajima is there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Uchiba had put on a play called Free Fred Brown. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that.
3: Free Fred Brown. Uh, This is my entry into Ujima, uh, my entry into professional theater in that sense. Uh, Free Fred Brown is a devised original work of Ujima. It's copyrighted. I I, uh, submitted the copyright application myself. (laughs) Uh, It was created over the course of a two-year period where um, the company at the time did not have a theatrical home. We didn't have a performance space. Uh, we were out of our, uh, our, our home at 545 Elmwood and had not yet moved into our new location that we're at now. So the decision was, well, we have to keep working. What do we do? Um, so we gathered And we figured we'll do a project about our community, what's going on in our community. And over the course of two years, the company had held storytelling circles with the community members, specifically around the topic of climate justice and climate impacts of community members who are largely kept outside of those conversations namely those who are in black and brown communities the communities that we see here the folks that are standing in line at the heap office in the winter time uh-huh have them tell the story. Um, and Free Fred Brown has actually been a part of the Ujima canon in the company since the 1980s. It was a skeleton of a play, and we've added additional stories based off of that story gathering process, uh, rehearsed it, just played around with people's stories and uh, used actors who were comfortable with sharing folks' stories in trying to figure out, okay, how do we create a script? So once the script was finalized, um, I use that term very loosely because it was changing all the time. (laughs) Uh, Once it was finalized, we we performed the first ever performance of Free Fred Brown at the Paul Robeson Theater. Uh, That was back in 2018. And the story is the story of a man who is arrested for theft of services for turning on the gas in his home to keep his family warm. And that's the main tenet of the story. But what you learn throughout the play is that there's an entire community around this one family that either helps, aids, um, or if they are in the form of the utility company, tries to undermine or overpower this family. And it is a story of how a community comes together, how it struggles, how it has to care for one another in a multifaceted manner. It isn't just about gas. It's about arts programming. It's about speaking to one another. It's about protests. It's about uh, gathering across aisles, across identities. It's about s- speaking truth to power and, and understanding that there is power when we speak together. Um, and we are happy to say that After touring that production of Free Fred Brown uh, for three years, within those three years, there was a proposed rate hike that was going to happen from a utility company. And after every performance, we urged the public, please say something. Please go to what nobody wants to go to, which is the public service commission meetings, and say something about how this impacts you. That even a couple of dollars every month can hurt so many families in Buffalo. Flow. That could be the difference between you having heat on this winter and not. And through the huge amount of testimony that the public now had, uh, they were able to stop that rate hike from happening. And it really shown that not only do the people have power, but art, artistic practice, theater has the ability to awaken something in people in order for them to understand their true power and bring them to action
1: it's more of a metaphor for just life mm-hmm. and the difficulties that one can have and how exactly a community can rally around something rally around a cause an idea um, a shooting
3: mm-hmm.
1: and be able to to affect real change. Right. How do you want to see this translate into the crisis that the community is facing today?
3: Uh, As an artist and as someone who creates containers for art, um, art has been my preferred language. It has been... What I wish to use to not only communicate, but paint pictures of the future. I think there is great strength and incredible things that can happen when you allow people to theorize less and dream more. Uh, I am hopeful that we we as in the arts community here in Buffalo can continue to create spaces where these quote-unquote uncomfortable conversations need to happen, that we showcase on our stages what is actually important to the community here in Buffalo, and that we create containers for folks to process that. How do we tell the stories that need to be told, not because we want to escape, some people like to use theater or entertainment to escape from the reality, but to stare it directly in the face, to look at it at one time, at the same time. Those audience members that you are sitting next to are are looking and sharing the experience of that same story with you in real time. And the question that we always leave with audiences is what do you do next what do you as a person in this community do next that is not the job of the artist to answer that question we present you with a question we present you with the reality a snapshot of what the world is right now and we say what do you do next
1: are you talking to white people Are you talking to black and brown people?
3: In terms of uh, the work that we're doing? Yeah. The cop-out answer is obviously we're talking to both. But depending on the piece itself, we have changed our audience based off of that and based off of the comfortability of the people telling the story. So sometimes it is the story of black and brown communities that we are presenting to just black and brown communities. If you happen to be a white person and experiencing that story, then congratulations, you've earned something. Uh, but sometimes it is the, the healing comes from black and brown communities and members in that community being able to speak their truth to a community. And we largely leave that to the folks whose stories that comes from. Uh, For example, our first play of this last season, American Son, was presented to an audience of both. It represented a story that many black mothers know of not hearing from your child who is a black man and not knowing where he went and thinking the worse. It is a story that many know that you can hear in the silences of that theater that they understood exactly what was happening, while at the same time sharing with our white brothers and sisters that this is the reality. This isn't, this isn't a, a fantasy story. This is exactly what we're going through. So what are you gonna do about it? Don't feel bad. If you feel bad, that doesn't mean anything. There's no action to feeling bad. Your sympathy does not change that my child is gone, that my community members are gone. So if you feel bad, turn that into something. Make the art the catalyst for you to do something, to change the way this story is done so that maybe the next time a story about American Son is made, it's a story about revival, about resurgence, uh, about a rebirth of a nation. That is what I am hopeful that our work continues to do is that we we toggle this line of who do we speak to? At that time, what is most important in terms of the audience? Who do we need to talk to? Who needs to do the work?
1: What do you think is next for Buffalo? What does Buffalo need right now?
3: I think Buffalo needs to not be shocked i think buffalo needs to sit in the reality that so many communities have sat in i think the idea of being shocked um of being thrown off by any event whether that was the the tragic events of the 14th or any events that happen in the future if we sit in shock We allow ourselves to kid ourselves that this isn't truly what Buffalo is. I think what Buffalo needs next is that we think strategically and structurally about how do we change the way our city is. For many people who have very little resources— we don't have time to do piecemeal things or have small actions. We have to think about how do we change the structures that allowed for this to happen.
1: Thank you, Maria Ta, for just this inspiration. Um, it really is what people need to hear right now, that sympathy is great, action is better, action is what is needed
0: that was Bridge jai Valenzo with Maria Ta and that will do it for today's Summertime Producers Picks episode we would like to thank our guests Kelly Diane Galloway Tenelle Jones and Maria Ta if you missed anything you'd like to hear it again a reminder that this program is a podcast you can get it wherever you get your podcast or the new Amplify BTPM app and each episode is available online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL in Olean, and WBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening.